turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17. One thing we all know about people is our dislike of being under authority. (laughs) We are all born with this natural, sinful tendency to kind of buck against anyone who wields power over us. If you have kids, you know this. If you have employees, you know this. If you're a teacher or police officer or work in the public sector, you know this. If you watch people drive down the street, you know this. (laughs) We naturally rebel against authority. And this rejection of authority seems to be even more prevalent in society today. We live in a time in which each individual person is their own judge and king. I can make my own decisions. I live my own life. It's my life. Nobody can tell me what to do. That's the spirit of the age. And so there's less trust today in, society, in institutions and in government. Uh, people dislike their boss or their leaders. There's a general just dislike and rejection of authority. And ultimately, this manifests itself with rebellion toward the authority of God. And that's not anything new. That was the first sin, wasn't it? Adam and Eve in the garden, they had everything they could ever want in a perfect world, and yet they rebelled against God and disobeyed the one rule they'd been given. They did not like the idea of someone else ruling over them. Ultimately, they wanted to be the ones in charge. And all of us do the same thing. See, that's what sin is. Sin is not just making a mistake or doing something wrong. Sin is rebellion against the authority of God. It's a rejection of his rightful rule over our lives. So all of this makes what we're doing today a bit strange. We are a people gathered this morning claiming Jesus as our king We're saying that God is our authority. We're taking a book written thousands of years ago and claiming it as the authoritative truth for our lives. Do you see how unique that is? By assembling together as a local church, we're submitting to God as our leader. We're striving to be a God-led church. That's what we want. That's what we need. And that's what I want to show you this morning. We're continuing walking through the true story of the book of Exodus. Exodus is a book about God's relationship with his chosen nation called the Israelites. He rescued them from centuries, or sorry, yeah, centuries of slavery in Egypt through a series of plagues and bringing them out by parting the Red Sea. And now they're being led through the wilderness to Mount Sinai by a man God raised up to be their deliverer and leader, a man named Moses. But God wanted his people to remember that ultimately Moses was not their highest authority. Even though he spoke on behalf of God and performed miracles by God's power, he was not the ultimate leader. God wanted his people to know that he, Yahweh, was in charge. He was the God who had made a covenant with their ancestor Abraham. He was the God who had brought them out of Egypt. And he is the God who will protect them, provide for them, and take them to the promised land. Today we come to two stories back to back that make that very point. They remind us of God's leadership and authority among his people. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to walk through these two stories in Exodus, see what they mean, and then we'll come in at the end and see how these truths show us what it means today to be a God-led church. 
Look with me first at Exodus chapter 17. We'll start in verses 8 through 13. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. To start this story, we have very little introduction. We just jump right into it, and we see that Israel has been thrown into their first battle. Ready or not, they are under attack from a group of people called the Amalekites. And unlike their previous encounter with Egypt, God doesn't want them to just sit back and be quiet. This time, they will have to fight. And this becomes important because as we go through the Old Testament storyline, we'll see that Israel will do a lot of fighting. As God's people, they have a lot of enemies. And they will have to routinely defend themselves on their way to the promised land. Here also, we're introduced for the very first time to an important character in the Old Testament named Joshua. We will learn that Joshua is the assistant to Moses. He's like his right-hand man, and eventually he will take over when Moses dies. He will actually be the one to lead God's people into the promised land, and here we see him leading them into battle. But it's interesting. This story really doesn't tell us much about what happens in the fight, in the battle. All we know is that Joshua got some of the Israelites together, and he went out and he fought the Amalekites. Instead, the focus in this story is on what Moses does, which is a little strange. Moses goes up on a hill, and he stands there with the staff in his hand. Why does he do that? I mean, couldn't he be doing something a bit more useful, like directing troops or whatever? We don't know if this was explicitly commanded by God or not. It doesn't say, but we do know that the staff has played a really important role throughout this narrative. Remember, this staff was what Moses used originally to herd sheep and goats in the wilderness of Midian. Then this same staff was used to perform incredible miracles in judgment over Egypt. And then this same staff was used to part the Red Sea so the Israelites could pass through and escape slavery. So the staff became a symbol of God's miraculous power. See, only God could take a wooden stick used to herd goats and make it the instrument by which the mightiest, na- mightiest nation on earth would be destroyed. God uses the weak to shame the strong, to display his glory so that all will know it's only by his power, not man's. And that's what the staff meant. So Moses, he holds the staff up in the air. And the people see it and they're encouraged by it because it's a reminder of God's power. We also see that God uses the staff again to miraculously work on behalf of Israel. Whenever the staff was held up, Israel started winning. Whenever it was lowered, they started losing. And this created an obvious problem. It's hard to hold your arms up in the air for a long period of time. You start feeling that burn, right, in your shoulder muscles. In fact, that could be a fun challenge for you later this afternoon. Go home as a family 
and see who can hold their arms up the longest. And you'll, you'll find it's actually tougher than you think. So obviously Moses, he, he got tired. His arms started to give out. And, and this was a problem because then they started losing. But think about it. I thought about this. After all the miracles we've seen God do through Moses, don't you think he could have helped him out here? <laughs> don't you think he could have given him a little bit of supernatural strength to hold his arms up until the end of the day? God doesn't do that. Here's why. Because God wants to remind us here of Moses' humanity, that though he was the leader of God's people, he was a weak and needy person just like you and me. So Aaron and her had to come along and help Moses, and they each took one of his arms and held them up in the air so that the staff remained lifted. And Israel won the battle. Here's the conclusion. Look at verses 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Joshua built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Here's one of the times we see in Exodus where God explicitly told Moses to write something down. It's one of the reasons we believe he was the author of this book. He's to write this down as a memorial. He's also to build an altar. It's the first time we see him do that. And this is not an altar for sacrifice, but rather it's an altar of remembrance. So, so we see something here that we've seen a lot throughout Exodus. God wanted his people to remember the things he did, to record them and to pass them on to the next generation. The altar, he says, is called the Lord is my banner, or in Hebrew, Yahweh Nisi. A banner was what we would think of as a sort of flag or sign pointing to a military victory. And, and that's the point here. This story was meant to teach God's people that he would fight for them and that through him they would have victory. Yes, there would be times in which they'd have to pick up a sword and go to war, but it wasn't about their military strength or might. They could not win without the staff being held up in the air. And yes, Moses would be the leader who would represent the people, but it wasn't about his strength either. He couldn't even hold his arms up long enough to secure the win. The whole point to this story is that God is the leader of his people. He is in charge. He fights for them, and he will receive the glory. So the people should worship and obey him above all else. Our second story comes right after this in chapter 18. And on the surface, it seems to be a very different kind of story. There's no big battle here. But in reality, it has a lot in common with its message. Let's walk through that in Exodus 18, verses 1 through 8. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. 
Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Do you guys remember old Jethro? I love how that's become a good southern name. What's that show, Derek, called? Beverly Hillbillies. That's about my family. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but what, you remember when Moses fled Egypt the first time, he ended up out in the wilderness of Midian, and that's where he met his wife Zipporah, and her, her father was named Jethro. Now we see him again, and he's heard all that God did in bringing Israel out of Egypt. And this is a fulfillment of what God said would happen. God said he was going to deliver his people so that he would be made known throughout the world. And we see that happening. Word is spreading about Yahweh and his power. So Jethro comes to visit. And and you know how excited Moses must have been. I mean, there's nothing people love more than an unexpected visit from their in-laws. The good news is that his wife and kids, who apparently had been sent away at some point for their protection, likely, uh, they've now returned to be with Moses. Notice how even the names of Moses' sons speak to God's story in his life. Moses sits down with Jethro and he shares with him all that God has done. And watch the response by Jethro, verses 9 through 12. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, father-in-law, before God. Isn't it fascinating that Jethro had a better response to all that God had done than just about anyone else? And he's just hearing about it. Remember, Jethro was not an Israelite. He was not a descendant of Abraham or a recipient of the great promises. And and yet he, he rejoices. He says, blessed be the Lord. He acknowledges that God is greater than all other gods, which was a really big deal to say in this time where every nation had their own gods. And he brings an offering and sacrifices to the Lord. This is a very significant moment because this is a fulfillment of Abraham's covenant with God. Remember that part of the promise from God to Abraham in Genesis was not only that God would bless him and his descendants, But it was also that through him and his descendants, through Israel, God would bless all the other nations of the world. It was never God's intent for Israel to be the only recipients of his salvation. Rather, God has always planned to redeem a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And Jethro is one of the fulfillments we see of this great promise. We see it again over and over throughout the Bible until ultimately we get to the book of Acts and we see the gospel going out to the nations. So, so let's not miss the significance of someone outside the nation of Israel becoming a worshiper of the God of Israel. We even see that the leadership accepted this. Aaron and the elders of Israel ate bread with Jethro. It says they did it before God. The meeting, the message of God's salvation had gone out into the world and people like Jethro were hearing it and believing 
And Jethro isn't done yet. Now that he's had this salvation experience of sorts, he's going to do what father-in-laws often do. He's going to give his son-in-law a little advice. Look with me at verses 13 through 16. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Uh, here we see in another, another example of Moses' leadership. He is a representative to the people of God, and so he, he functions as their judge. When there were problems or needs and they needed God's wisdom, they didn't have a written book of law at this point, so they would go to Moses. But again, here's the problem. Moses is human. He's a weak, frail, ordinary person just like us. And the nation of Israel was about 2 million people at this time. So he's spending all day trying to solve their problems. So here's Jethro's advice. Look at verses 17 through 23. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. Something my father-in-law says to me a lot. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all the people also will go to their place in peace. Jethro straight up tells Moses, he says, look, what you're doing is not good. You're wearing yourself out. This is too much. You need some help. Essentially, Jethro tells him that, yes, Moses, you represent God. Yes, what you're doing is important, giving people God's word, but you're not God. You're a man. And if you don't get some others to help you, this isn't going to work for very long. So he suggests establishing this system. Moses would select trustworthy men who knew God, and they're going to take care of the small stuff, and Moses can be reserved for the big stuff. And Jethro says, here's the result. If you'll do this, you will be able to endure. That's the key. Moses will be able to continue being the leader of God's people if he can learn to delegate and share the leadership load. Moses recognized this advice is coming from God and honoring the Lord. So he put the new leadership structure into place. And he sent his father-in-law off back home. He shut the door and said, oh, finally. <laughs> And chapter 18 comes to a close. Now, when we put these two stories together, here's what we see. Moses, while God's appointed leader, was powerless without God's authority. While he was very important to God's plans, Moses was merely a mediator of God's rule over his people. That meant that God was the true leader of his people. And Israel needed to keep that in mind if things were to go well for them. And we need to keep that same thing in mind today as the church. 
Yes, we live in a different time and different context and under a different covenant, but we are God's people, united to him by his son Jesus. 1 Peter 2.10 says this about the church. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So as God's new covenant people, the New Testament says that we are the body of Christ with Jesus as our head. God is still our true authority. And that means when we gather as a local expression of God's people, we call a church, we must be a God-led church. So the time we have left, let me show you briefly three characteristics we saw in our passage today of people who were led by God. And then let's apply them to us. Here's the first. Number one, we see that a God-led church must be characterized by collective exaltation. Collective exaltation. These are big words, I know, and I'm regretting my choice there. But by exaltation, I simply mean lifting up, elevating, honoring, praising. And, and we do this collectively, I mean, together. So, so what does a God-led church praise together? Well, God, of course, right? Right? Unfortunately, we, we know that's not always the case. For one reason or another, sometimes churches collectively exalt other things. Some churches exalt tradition, ritual, or liturgy. Some churches exalt their music or their stage design and lighting. Some churches exalt their preacher and his teaching ability. Some churches exalt their favorite social issue or theological doctrine. And some churches simply exalt themselves. But the church exists for the same reason that everything exists, to bring glory to God. And we of all people, when we gather collectively and come together to worship, must exalt him above all else. He must be our banner. Israel saw with their own eyes the victory secured for them through God's power. So they said, if we're going to lift something up, if we're going to lift the banner of victory, our banner is going to be the Lord. It's going to be about him and his glory and his greatness. And we must do the same here at Blue Valley. Our worship on Sunday morning from the songs that we sing to the prayers that we pray to the sermons that we preach must be done to bring attention to God, to give him the credit and to cause all people to worship him. Our Sunday school classes must be focused on God's word and what God is doing in our lives, not on our favorite pet topics or strong opinions or the hot issue of the day. Our ministries from babies all the way to adults, our missions in the world, our community efforts here locally must all be done to bring God glory. That's what it's about. And then on a personal level, we all need to come here with that focus in our minds. Is that true of you? Think about it. Why are you here today? Are you here today because of tradition? Maybe because someone else wanted you to be here, made you be here? Are you here to get something for yourself? So often we gauge our time at church based on what we get out of it. We say things like, oh, I'm just, I'm not being fed, or no one talked to me today, or I didn't get anything out of the message, or the music wasn't very good, someone ate my favorite donut. Huh. That is American consumerism garbage. And if that's the way you measure your church experience, you will never find a church you like. 
And you will end up like many Christians, staying home and curating their favorite preachers on TV who won't challenge you or say things you don't like. Look, when we gather, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about what we can get or how we can become better versions of ourselves. It's about God. We exist for him. We come here for him. And if he's to be the leader of our church, he must be the focus. Here's the second thing we see that God's people are characterized by. Number two, gospel proclamation. God told Israel over and over while he worked to bring them out of slavery, he said, I'm doing this so that all peoples will know me. That was God's plan for Israel. It wasn't just to have a relationship with them only, but it was to use them to show the rest of the world what a relationship with God looks like so that all the rest of the people then would come to a knowledge of God like Jethro. And that's what we see in these early stages, God beginning to fulfill that promise. When Jethro showed up to see Moses, did you you notice what he said? He didn't say, man, Moses, I have heard how great of a leader you are. Or Moses, I have heard how great you, this, this people you have are. No, he said, I have heard how great your God is. And Moses says, that's right. Let me tell you what our God has done for us, how he saved us. Jethro hears it, he believes it, and he turns to God as the only true living God. This is the pattern of a God-led church. A church that has God as its leader seeks to be known by him and what he's done in the gospel message. The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves despite our sin. And that is the chief thing we want to be known for in our community. But is that what people think about Blue Valley? When they hear our church's name, when people in our community drive by our campus and see our sign, is that what comes to their mind? Do they think, oh, those people, man, they're they're really crazy about that Jesus guy. They really want other people to know about him. Like, I I don't want our church to be known for anything else. Like, I don't want people to say, oh, that church has really good music or really good preaching or they're really friendly and they even have donuts some Sundays. Look, those things are important. Especially donuts, no. But above all else, I want people to know us as a church that is serious about Jesus and what he's done in the gospel. A God-led church proclaims the message of what God has done, and that is the focus and lens through which they view all ministry. Here's the third and last thing we see that characterizes a God-led people. Number three, shared administration. And this may sound like a little bit of a boring point, but this is more important than we know. This point is about the advice that Jethro gave Moses to better organize the ministry and leadership of the people. He recognized Moses' human weakness and taught him the importance of sharing the load and of delegating the leadership. And just as Moses could not possibly do all the work of leading the people, no single person can do all the work of leading a church. That's not the way God designed it to work. And when one guy tries to be the sole leader, they often end up burning the place down. And they end up diminishing God because they get the glory instead of him. May that never be said of Blue Valley. Look, this is not my church. Pastor Derek's church or Jeremy's church or the elder's church, the deacon's church or anyone's church. This is God's church. 
And the best way for us to remind one another of that truth is by all of us getting in on the action. So that means we're going to be a church where we expect every member to have some responsibility here. This is not a church where you can just come and sit and soak and leave. This is all hands on deck. Every member in ministry, we need everyone to have a role. And that's not just a desire, it's, it's a need. We can't be the church God has called us to be without you playing the role God has called you to play. I can't lead this church by myself. I may be the guy that stands up front, but I am not gifted, nor am I able to do all the ministry in this body. None of us are. We need your help. We need your giftings. So let me close with a challenge. If we are to be a God-led church, how are you seeking to help us by carrying the ministry responsibility? Is there something our pastors, our deacons, our staff, our Sunday school teachers are doing that you could help them take on? What could be delegated to you so that we can share the load? What is it that God might be calling you to do to use your gifting and his calling to serve this church and to show people that it's not about any one of us, it's about God? If we're to be a God-led church, that's where it starts. And I want us to close this morning by spending some time praying through these points. Would you bow your head with me?